Coming up on this week's Milestone Show, we talk about our recent trip to the RWA National Conference, all the Broadway we saw, and we'll announce something new. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome, everyone, to episode 200 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willkanaus.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hi, everybody. This episode of the show is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join them at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Well, here we are. Another another week, another show. This one's a little more special than others because we have a couple zeros <laughs> tacked onto this one. Yes, Indeed, we, yes. we have reached episode 200. It's pretty amazing. 200 times we've done this now. Actually, <laughs> more than that because there's bonus episodes in there. But this is the important one because, as you noted, it has the zeros behind it. Yeah. Bring on those zeros. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any particularly deep thoughts. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> to, I, I'm not going to mark the a, occasion with anything like deep and meaningful. Um, I just think it's cool that we have done this 200 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, the thing that we started back in November of 2015 has caught the interest of enough people that we continue to do it week after week. And I'm thrilled that we've been able to highlight authors and books, and help grow people's TBRs. Every time somebody messages us that, that we have added to their book budget and their TBR, it's like a little like victory that we've put another book in somebody's hands. Um, yes, that's very, very true. <laughs> also worth noting, if you have stuck it out with us for all 200 episodes, uh, we thank you. You are uh, an OG of the Big Gay Fiction <laughs> Podcast. Uh, so for longtime listeners and people who have just discovered us, we're very thankful you are here. I want to give a special shout out to DeLorean Morris. Uh, back when we were live streaming episode 190 during that recording session, we were asking our Facebook audience how we should celebrate uh, episode 200. And DeLorean actually asked if there were, in fact, pictures from each of the episodes, because all the episodes do get pictures of us uh, for social media use. And wouldn't it be cool if we made a reel of those pictures, kind of a time lapse of 200 episodes? Well, I did that. (laughs) Uh, And it will be attached to the end of the video for this week on YouTube, and it'll also be uh, on the show notes page is a separate reel, so you can watch it there, and I'll probably put it up on social media as well. So thank you, DeLorean, for that wonderful idea. It's kind of crazy watching 200 pictures zip by in about three minutes. Uh, but uh, yeah, you could check that out as like a little time capsule of our first 200 episodes. Indeed. Quick note, you may have noticed last week's episode was a little shorter than usual. Um We ran into a minor situation when it came to episode 199. We pre-recorded and pre-produced episode 199 because we were still in New York. We were wrapping up our RWA experience. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, as we sat down to dinner, we were um, in between Broadway shows. (laughs) Um, Jeff noticed 
online that our particular guest uh, interview for that week was saying some unfortunate things uh, on the social media, on the interwebs. Um, And we felt uh, under those particular circumstances, we could not run that interview that particular week. Um, So we made a very quick executive decision. Um, It's the first time we've ever done anything (laughs) like this. Uh, We pulled that particular interview, which is why we only had those essentially just two reviews uh, in episode 199. Now, um, it's worth noting that the uh, comments that this particular person made um, had nothing to do with uh, the interview uh, itself. Um, This individual has since apologized for the comments that they made online. Um, So we will most likely be running this interview at a later date. So we just wanted to quickly explain why uh, episode 199 was a little uh, a little light on content. <laughs> it was teeny tiny. It was teeny tiny episode. So here we are, episode 200. Uh, we've got a special announcement to go along with this momentous episode. I feel like we should have drum rolls or something. <laughs> Maybe I'll put them in in post. (laughs) (laughs) Eh, that's a little bit of extra work that you don't need to do. Okay, Um, good point. So here's a quick story. Um, Earlier this year, we thought it would be a fantastic idea if we were able to take a month off during the summer. (laughs) We were going to be, you know, proactive and pre-plan and pre-record a bunch of episodes so that um, we originally targeted July. We were going to take July off. Uh, and just like chill and relax and you know not have to worry about the show while we're in New York. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, we ended up, I don't even know how, what we were thinking. I know. The idea of getting ahead was a little ridiculous. And <laughs> um, It totally did not happen at all. We ended up doing a whole lot more. In fact, we decided to add a brand new show to our workload. Do you want to make the big announcement? I can do that. So on Saturday, August 3rd, we debuted the first five episodes of the Big Gay Author Podcast, which, of course, you can find at BigGayAuthorPodcast.com. I've made the announcement. Why don't you tell everybody what this new thing is about? So uh, as longtime listeners know, here on Big Gay Fiction, we talk about um, sort of the media that we are consuming. We talk about the books that we love and we talk to super awesome authors. And we do that every single week. We've been doing that for 200 episodes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the Big Gay Author is going to primarily focus on our writing and our attempts to become full-time authors. Um, each week, every Saturday, we're essentially going to recap um, what we've done in order to move our author careers forward. Now, in our premiere episode, uh, we spent uh, several minutes talking about what we learned at RWA in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested, uh, if there are any authors listening right now, um, <laughs> uh, we would appreciate if you gave Big Gay Author a try. Uh, hopefully, you'll like what we have to offer. Um, anything else? Well, we can say within those first couple episodes, uh, for the authors who are listening, we do have an interview with Judith Utz, who is a PR professional, and she's got some great information about how to either work with a PR professional, if you're thinking about that, or some tips uh, if you want to do some PR on your own. 
We also actually repurposed an uh, interview out of Big Gay Fiction podcast back from episodes 45 and 46 uh, with Joanna Penn, who is a podcaster, thriller author, and all around indie indie publishing guru. And she talks about uh, successful author mindset and being an author entrepreneur. So the authors out there might want to check all that out at BigGayAuthorPodcast.com. In the Hockey Player's Heart, The Feel-Good Gay Romance by Jeff Adams and Will Knauss, hockey star Caleb Carter returns to his hometown to recover from an injury. He never expects to run into his one-time crush at a grade school fundraiser. Seeing Aaron Price hits him hard, like being checked into the boards. The attraction is still there, even after all these years, and Caleb decides to make a play for the school teacher. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? Aaron has been burned by love before and can't imagine what a celebrity like Caleb could possibly see in a guy like him. Their differences are just too great. But as Aaron spends more time with Caleb, he begins to wonder if he might have what it takes to win the hockey player's heart. Get the hockey player's heart in ebook, paperback, or as an audiobook performed by me, Finn Sterling, wherever you buy books. So we were in New York City for about 10 days, and over that time, we spent every evening except one in a Broadway theater, Mm -hmm. because we're crazy that way. Between us, we saw 10 shows, and we saw nine apiece, because we did split off on a Sunday afternoon to see separate things. So shall we kick it off? This is going to be in the order in which we saw them. So take us away, Will. A quick caveat. Um, I was thinking about this uh, earlier. Um, We were in New York for 10 days, and we ended up uh, spending an astronomical amount of money on going to Broadway shows. Despite the fact that almost everything we saw we got half price at the TKTS booth, um, it's still an awful lot of money. Um, And it was justified because Broadway is our hobby. I mean, some people like to go see sporting events or they like go to Michael's and spend lots and lots of money on scrapbooking or fabric or, you know, going to New York once a year is our hobby. Mm -hmm. And theater is what we love. So even though we did spend a whole bunch of money, I don't feel bad about it at all. Yeah. Um, So let's get down. Well, I think to that point, we... If we lived there, we were to spread these out over Very true. months. Very true. And so we just happened to cram about six or eight or nine months of Broadway into 10 days. <laughs> ten, ten, 10 days, exactly. Um, this year's Broadway offerings were uh, a mishmash this year. Usually the Broadway season ends up having like one big hit or the show's kind of for for whatever reason, kind of have a specific theme. Um, Last year, when we went to New York City, all of the shows we saw were either a uh, revival or uh, had uh, strong gay themes. Mm -hmm. Um, This year, uh, the Broadway season was kind of a mishmash. Uh, Town, which won the Tony Award for Best Musical, um, kind of snuck up on everybody. It had some really positive buzz going into awards season, but uh, boom, it just sort of uh, kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, we were aware of it 
we were kind of waiting to see what happened. We were like mildly intrigued. Um, but by the time it had won the Tony <laughs> Awards, uh, it was too late and we could not get a ticket to that particular show. So perhaps some other time we yeah. will experience <laughs> Hades Town. Uh, until then, we saw a whole bunch of really amazing stuff. The first night in New York City, we went and saw King Kong the Musical. Um, this show came out of Australia. Um, it did not have a lot of positive buzz <laughs> coming into New York City. Uh, I am a longtime mo- mo- monkey movie fan. Yes, you uh, are. So King Kong has always been one of my particular favorites. So we were just really, really curious about what this particular musical had to offer. If you've never seen King Kong the movie, it is essentially the story of... A woman who's picked out of the uh, breadlines of New York City in the 1930s, and she's swept off to a tropical island where they discover a really big monkey. They trap him, bring him back to New York, and put him on display where he escapes, climbs to the top of the Empire State Building, and then dies. That's there you a, go. That is King Kong in a nutshell, and that is essentially what is going on in the musical. Um, what were your particular thoughts about this musical? I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, especially from a stagecraft point of view. Uh, they do amazing work. The Kong is a ginormous, essentially, puppet manned by about a dozen puppeteers throughout the show. Um, think Lion King on steroids. Uh, because it's so massive and is so he's a character he he his face carries all the emotions his voice is being done by live actors backstage so all the roars and everything have you know are nuanced the the way that they sail the boat to Skull Island there's an elaborate video projection system that works really well uh, the story is a bit of a mess. I'll be honest. The story is a bit of a mess. The music is not memorable, but the actors are really good, especially the actors who plays Andero. Uh, her name is Christiani Pitts. Uh, and it all just works. This is in my top three of the shows that we saw because it was spectacular. I was extremely entertained and I was in awe by a lot of it. There's a point where... Kong comes to the lip of the stage and like reaches out over the first couple rows. And we were in the third row on the side. So it was all like really way close to us. Um, I think this show um, doesn't get nearly enough credit. I think it gets a lot more things right than it gets wrong. Mm -hmm. I would say Um, that. As Jeff said, it's not perfect. um, But I think the team behind the Kong puppet should be commended. Um, there's an awful lot of emotion coming from that that 24 foot like he's a hunk of like foam and probably like uh, steel framing. Um, it's really remarkable what they're able to achieve. And a shout out to Christiani Pitts. Um, she really carries the show on her shoulders. Uh, she's quite remarkable as Anne. Um, they made some minor changes to the story. Uh, it's much more focused on uh, Anne as a character and as a woman in the 1930s and kind of coming into her own, uh, into herself and kind of like about female empowerment, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really, really good. We both really enjoyed King Kong. 
Next show we want to talk about is The Share Show. Um, this is essentially a, a biopic musical about, guess who? Cher. <laughs> um, and it follows Cher from uh, a little girl who doesn't uh, think she's anything special to uh, the present day, uh, where she becomes the icon that she is. Um, I think the Cher show, um, in the past, Broadway has been... Uh, some biopic shows have worked, some haven't. Um, I definitely think the Share Show is one that works. Um, I really love this an awful lot. Um, something worth noting is that they did something unique. Uh, three different actresses portray Cher at different points in her life. Um, Michaela, Michaela Diamond, Teal Wicks, and Tony Award winner Stephanie J. Block. Um, each of them are really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Each of them brings something very special to the role. Uh, but I think um, it's worth noting, uh, Stephanie J is remarkable. Um, she most definitely deserved that Tony Award. Um, this show is fun and inspiring and filled with amazing music. Mm -hmm. I was very hesitant for a long time on this show because of the three shares and i didn't really get why it just couldn't be stephanie in makeup because you know stephanie can pretty much do anything we're, mm -hmm. we're big fans of stephanie <laughs> but the way that they did it where the two who are not the main focus in that time frame are talking to the share who is and it it worked <laughs> yeah, um, it's essentially the three different shares um, having conversations with herself uh, and offering advice, um, which sounds idiotic when I explain it that way. But mm -hmm. um, if you if you actually see it, um, it really works. It's uh, funny and interesting, and it kind of um, highlights the trials and tribulations that Cher has gone through as a performer over um, an. an, an it's it's sort of insane to think about. Cher has been in the biz for over fifty years, um, so yeah. it's uh, it's a really terrific show. Uh, about ready to close. So if you are listening to this at the beginning of August, get thee to the theater immediately. You don't want to yeah. miss this one. In fact, most of the shows we're talking about right now are either closing on August eleventh or eighteenth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, one more shout out on the Cher show, Michael Baris, who I adore as a dancer who I have not seen, I think, since the Kiss Me Kate revival sometime in the middle 2000s, not the one that just closed. He plays multiple roles, including Bob Mackie in this show. There's a dance number with it, when they do The Beat Goes On, and it's really used to just pass time, but he gets to cut loose and dance, and it made me so happy to see that. Mm -hmm. Really good to see him. Up next is our only play. Uh, we went and saw the revival of Terrence McNally's Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, starring uh, Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon. And uh, I think we mentioned a couple of episodes back, we actually watched a PBS uh, documentary. Was it an American Masters? It was. Uh, there was an entire show about Terrence McNally, and uh, he spoke briefly about Frankie and Johnny. And this was essentially his attempt to tell a love story about ordinary people, about totally average, everyday people, you know, you'd see uh, walking down the street. People you probably wouldn't notice otherwise. Um, 
Yeah. Frankie's a waitress in a diner, and Johnny is the cook in the diner. Mm -hmm. And they've gone on a date that went kind of okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe (laughs) it. It went kind of okay. And it's essentially um, the, the... the play takes uh, place over a single evening uh, after they've had that date. Um, and it's, um, gosh, what is it? It's raw. It's funny. Um, it's, uncomfortable at it's times. It's uncomfortable. Uh, it's very real and very, very interesting. I've never seen Frankie and Johnny on stage. I know there's a movie with uh, De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. I believe so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. I've never seen that one either. So, uh, I was totally, uh, fresh and new and, uh, I really enjoyed it. The performances, uh, especially are quite remarkable. Yes. Enjoyed everything about it. And I'm happy to watch Audra do anything. Uh, the next musical we took part of was called The Prom. The Prom centers on a group of New York City actors. Uh, They've recently suffered a setback when their musical uh, (laughs) biopic about Eleanor Roosevelt uh, had opened and closed in a single night. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, these lovable narcissists are kind of licking their wounds and they come up with the idea that they'll find a social cause that they can champion. That way, (laughs) no one will think they're narcissists ever again and they'll uh, be seen as uh, uh, good and altruistic um, so they go online to see what's trending and they find a girl uh, in a small town in middle America and she has been denied the right to go to prom with her girlfriend so off they go to the middle of nowhere <laughs> to meddle in where they probably shouldn't uh, and hilarity ensues um, oh my god this show is so funny and so cute and so uh i'm i'm gonna use the word effervescent um sure (laughs) it's so much fun uh filled with amazing performances uh by the entire cast yeah it deserved all of the award buzz that it got uh it is unfortunately one of the shows that is closing uh which is a shame but it is going to be made into a netflix something Ryan Murphy has it. He hasn't quite said how he's going to do it yet, but it will live on on Netflix, which is awesome. I love the show to pieces. This is in my top three mm-hmm. uh, for the trip. It's it is so big hearted and such good storytelling and such a timely piece of work. Uh, I will say it had the darkest of dark black moments going in closing out Act One. I was like. Oh my God! What's going to happen next? <laughs> Even though you kind of knew it was going to turn out okay, because the the big thing that they've always shown of this show is, in fact, its closing number uh, at the Tonys and stuff. But yeah, I adored it so hard. So as I mentioned on Sunday afternoon, we kind of split up a little bit to see some different shows. I went and saw Be More Chill. Uh, this was what I really wanted to see because I've enjoyed the Off Broadway soundtrack that came out in 2015. And I adore this young adult novel as well. This is the story of a young man who, like so many of us in high school, just wants to be cool. He wants to hang with the cool kids. And one day he finds out about this nanotechnology that's available to implant into his brain and tell him how to be cool. (laughs) Or, if you will, how to be more chill. Uh, As you can imagine, this goes horrifically wrong eventually, and the squip actually is on a a quest to take over the entire world, 
um, from this Japanese multi multinational corporation that has invented this technology. So not only does our young hero have to overcome uh, the effects of the squip with the help of his uh, gay BFF, um, Michael, who is adorable in this show. Um, this was so good, and you would have so hated it. Um, it's got a, <laughs> it's got a loud rock and roll score. Uh, it adheres to the book so well, and really have to give some shout-outs. Uh, Will Rowland, who uh, originated uh, Jared in Dear Evan Hansen, uh, is in this show playing the lead guy, Jeremy, here. He's so good uh, playing Jeremy as the very uncool kid and then evolving as he's taken control of uh, by the squip. Um, George Salazar has received so many, uh, pr so much praise for his portrayal of Michael, that best friend, uh, and has some really heartbreaking songs as he's being left behind. Uh, by his friend who has become cool. Uh, I loved it. I loved it to pieces. I've got to get the new soundtrack because I've changed it in some really good ways. And yeah, if you're into young adult literature being made into musicals, this goes away on August. I believe it's the 18th for the show, but it might be the 11th. So time's running out. So while Jeff was at Be More Chill, uh, I went over to the Winter Garden and partook of Beetlejuice the Musical. Uh, yes, we have another movie-to-stage adaptation. <laughs> and uh, this was not high on my list to see, uh, but I figured, hey, I'll give it a shot. Uh, I'm really, really glad I did. I think they did an amazing job of adaptating... Ad, ad, is that the right Adapting. Word? Adapting, thank you. <laughs> adapting this for the stage. So, for the two people on planet Earth who have not seen the movie Beetlejuice, um, it's essentially about about a couple who buy their dream house but unfortunately die um <laughs> and that poor couple um wants to uh essentially now that they're ghosts uh scare the new tenants out of their beloved home uh enter beetlejuice a sort of whack wackadoodle uh ghost demon uh he's going to help them uh, and hilarity and weirdness ensues. It's a Tim Burton movie, so it gets pretty weird and wacky. Um, and that weird and wackiness uh, was, uh, ad as as Jeff said, adapted to the stage. Uh, I thought really, really well. They made some minor changes to the story, but in this case, I think it really served the plot and made it a lot better. Um, real quickly, I want to talk about the cast because I thought they were uh, quite exceptional. Um, as the newly dead couple, we've got Carrie Butler and Rob McClure. They play uh, the Gina Davis and um, Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Uh, they play those two roles and they're delightful. We've been a fan of Carrie Butler's for a really long time and she's excellent. Uh, Rob McClure has had some really terrific roles uh, past couple of seasons on Broadway and uh, I've never seen him. Uh, he's really terrific in Beetlejuice. Um, a special shout out to Alex Brightman. He plays the title role. Um, he was Tony nominated for School of Rock. Uh, so kind of big, outrageous characters uh, have become his forte. Mm -hmm. uh, and he does not disappoint in Beetlejuice. He kind of um, makes the character his own. He's not like copying what Michael Keaton did in the movie. Uh, he's kind of... Uh, 
I don't even know how to describe it. Um, <laughs> he he takes it up a couple of notches. Here here's here's what I thought at the beginning of the show. Um, I was like I was like oh Christ because the second he steps on stage he is cranked all the way up to eleven <laughs> and it's just like oh no a whole show like this but. Um, he's really talented and really, really funny, and he makes it work. He keeps it at 11 the entire show. So I think wow. that's um, it's worth noting. This is a marathon for this poor guy because um, he spends almost the entire show on stage. Uh, he does an exceptional job. I thought it was really, really funny that this particular version of Beetlejuice uh, is particularly foul-mouthed, uh, which uh, I found great joy in because of the number of children that were in uh, that particular matinee audience. I got a little sick pleasure out of that. Um, also, <laughs> also worth noting is so Sophie Ann Caruso. She plays the Winona Ryder role. And what they've managed to do uh, in this show is they've kind of reworked the part to where she is uh, essentially the second lead. Um, Her character um, has the most important and biggest story arc. Um, uh, In this particular show, her mother dies at the beginning. And uh, she's kind of obsessed with seeing her mother one last time and being able to say goodbye, which leads to a really interesting moment in Act 2 where she goes into the underworld uh, in order to find her mother once again. Um, It's all really, really good. Uh, As I mentioned, I think the changes uh, they made uh, were good. Uh, They made logical sense for the story uh also kudos to the production team the design is beautiful i think they adapted uh the the (laughs) tim burton aesthetic really well for the stage um so along with all of the kind of rapid fire comedy that's going on in the script there's all sorts of lighting and special effects um it's truly uh, a wonderful, funny, uh, exciting uh, evening at the theater. So uh, if nice. you, I highly recommend it. I had a great time. Yeah. And it's not closing, <laughs> at least at the moment. So you've got some time if you want to see Beetlejuice. So uh, our next show we want to talk about is yet another movie-to-stage adaptation. It's Pretty Woman, the musical. Um, this one, unlike Beetlejuice, which like took some liberties with the story, uh, Pretty Woman the Musical, uh, stays true to its mm-hmm. um, movie origins. It's exactly the same thing, but on stage. Um, do you want to take the lead uh, in describing? Well, okay, here's, here's, here's the plot. <laughs> Julia Roberts is a gorgeous prostitute in L.A. She hangs out with a billionaire Richard Gere. Uh, they fall in love and live happily ever after in the end. Cinderella story personified. (laughs) Uh, And it is a pretty straightforward adaptation of the film, as you said. But some really good performances here. And the score from Brian Adams is pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can occasionally hear what sounds like very typical Brian Adams in there. But there's some stuff, too, that is is not signature Brian Adams at the same time. I think anyone from our generation, specifically Gen X, you're going to be pretty familiar with the sort of Brian Adams uh, movie 
song sound, um, the sort of like grand decorations of love with guitar riffs in the middle. Um, so those show up in this show, yep. and they're kind of delightful. I they really, really like are. <laughs> um, Got to shout out uh, Brennan Hunt, who is playing the Richard Gere character here. Now, Brennan got a lot of, of rough press back uh, January, I guess. He was Roger in the Rent Live uh, musical on Fox that, of course, he broke his foot in that dress rehearsal. Um, he is really good in this role. He plays that uh, billionaire tycoon looking for love oh so well. Uh, really redeemed himself from some of that uh, misfortune back there. Jillian Mueller, uh, who has a great distinction of having played both uh, Baby in uh, Dirty Dancing on tour and... Alex in Flashdance on tour is here as the Julia Roberts character, also really endearing and charming. Uh, but the show for me was actually made by two of the support characters, um, Orfe, who we adore and don't see on stage nearly enough, plays uh, the hooker friend, and her big voice and brassy personality are so awesome. And Eric Anderson. Uh, his largest role in this is probably the hotel manager. Yes. Um, who is the it? Hector Elizondo part. Exactly. But he also plays uh, somebody who is on the street and hanging out with the hookers and has a couple other roles. He is amazing because uh, he's also kind of the narrator through part of this as well. So I had the best time at this show. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed it. A lot of rom-com fun. Also closing very soon. <laughs> And if, if there another was, movie coming right up, <laughs> if there was a particular theme to all the shows that we saw this year, uh, it would be the movie to stage adaptation. Next up, we have Tootsie the Musical. Um, it's hard to believe, but I am 47 years old. And until very recently, I had never seen the movie Tootsie. Um, it showed up on TCM not that long ago. I recorded it and watched it. Um, the movie is remarkably funny, and I think it holds up very, very well, uh, despite it being uh, it's at least 35 years old. I think so, yeah. Um, it's uh, It essentially uh, stays very true uh, to the movie. Uh, it's about uh, kind of <laughs> a, a New York City actor, uh, Michael Dorsey. Um, he's up his own ass an awful lot. Uh, he's terrible to work with. Uh, no one in town wants to cast him. So he comes up with the brilliant idea to don drag uh, and go to a, an audition. And he gets the role. So now Michael has to live as Dorothy Michaels. Um, it's really funny. Um I don't. I don't even. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Um. Here. Here. Here's the thing. Um. The show really stands on the shoulder of the Tony Award-winning performance from uh, Santino Fontana. Mm -hmm. um, he's really remarkable uh, as the lead. Uh, a guy who puts on a dress to learn to become a better man. Um. It's really funny. I think the show. Um, takes uh, a few liberties. Um, in the movie, Michael gets cast in a soap opera and uh, achieves national stardom. Here in the musical, Michael gets cast in a musical sequel to Romeo and Juliet. Huh? Um, <laughs> it's really funny, um, but I think as someone who uh, saw 
the movie recently and it was like so fresh in my mind. I think the idea of doing a musical um, is good, but I don't think it has the same impact on the story that um, being on a, a nationally seen soap opera does. Mm. So I'm not sure um, Michael's fame uh, has quite the same impact in this show. That's like a super minor quibble. Um, uh, I think Tootsie is really, really good. I don't think it's perfect. It's not a perfect show. Uh, but there are some genuinely remarkable performances for some very talented actors. Uh, and I think we both enjoyed this show an awful lot. I enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed Santino. Uh, mm-hmm. I will say that in the second act, the comedy got a little broad for my taste. Uh, and I also thought that uh, his grand gesture towards the end, his redemption in the eyes of the woman that he was falling for, I don't think was earned quite enough. So I had a little storytelling issue towards the end of the show. But two hours and a half with Santino doing his thing was (laughs) more than worth the price of admission for me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, Next up, we saw the truly wonderful and unique revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. Now, if you've been listening, we actually recently saw a local production of Oklahoma. And the reason we were interested in that is because uh, Music Circus here in Sacramento is a theater in the round. And we wanted to see how they would adapt uh, essentially all those dancing cowboys. How are they going to fit on a circle stage? Um, they, They did a wonderful job. Also, what's worth noting is in that local production, they did colorblind casting which was really really wonderful uh we enjoyed that production uh we enjoyed this new broadway revival even more um it is uh playing at circle in the square theater so it's like partially in the round if you've ever been to circle and square new york city you know what i'm talking about and essentially in this particular production what they've done is they've taken uh an extremely naturalistic approach, uh, a little bit of history on Oklahoma. It, it's most known for, well, being an American classic, but it was essentially the very first naturalistic musical. I think that's usually the term used to describe it um, because uh, the songs were an integral part of the plot. The characters were singing about what they were experiencing, which is a pretty new and revolutionary idea in the very early 40s when Oklahoma first hit Broadway. So what the producers and team behind Oklahoma have done now, um, it's essentially played in modern uh, modern dress, you know, with cowboy stylings, uh, and they've... um, reworked some of the orchestrations for a smaller band and given it a much more kind of country bluegrass sound. Um, The more traditional sound of Oklahoma is a little bit big and Broadway. There's like strings and the orchestra and that kind of a thing. Uh, They stripped this back a little bit uh, and kind of gone really deep into the sort of like naturalistic style. Um, And it's really remarkable. It's I think Jeff has said um, it's like seeing it again for the very first time. It's like, oh, I never really thought about this show in that way. Um, I think before we continue, Oklahoma is about a cowboy named Curly who's in love with uh, a farm gal named Lori. 
And then there's this the creepy guy, Judd Fry, who works on the farm. And uh, there's sort of a bit of a love triangle going on there. Uh, and it's sort of about the trials and tribulations of the farmers and the cowboys and the afternoon they spend at the box social, that kind of thing. Um, it's really, really good. Yeah, this this production just... This is my favorite thing that we saw. Um, it tops that top three. And this is from somebody who, until like three months ago, thought, God, Oklahoma's the most boring thing ever. And then <laughs> that Music Circus production tweaked me over a little bit. And then this one just like, hmm, that's Oklahoma done well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's very naturalistic here. Essentially, the audience is attending the box social. Uh, the, the house lights in the theater are up probably 90% of the show. Uh, the people in the front row are essentially in the front yard of the house of the barn of, of the house where this is taking place at. Uh, so they're integral to the show. Uh, people come dance on their tables and stuff. It's everybody's on stage pretty much all the time. Uh, so you could watch Judd Fry be creepy a lot <laughs> while he's not even actively in a scene. It was just mind blowing. There have been other shows that I've seen that are revivals that really tweak the original and turn it into something different and amazing. And I'm thinking like the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening on Broadway from about five years ago now, four or five years ago. Um, The newer version of Les Miserables that uh, came out um, about five years ago also. Um, The Fisco uh, theater production of Into the Woods that turned that show much darker uh, than it typically was. Um, just extraordinariness across the board on this. And you get to go to the box social and have chili and cornbread during intermission. It's kind of fun. So, <laughs> um, It's also, also <laughs> worth noting, uh, not only is the show itself exceptional, we were really, really happy that we got to experience the Tony Award-winning performance of Ali Stroker as Ado Annie. Mm-hmm. So kudos all around. It's really yeah. remarkable. And if you are in New York, uh, please consider uh, checking it out. Yes, their limited engagement runs through j- into January, so you've got some time on that. Last but not least, on our final evening in New York City, we went and saw the newly opened uh, movie-to-stage adaptation of Moulin Rouge. So uh, if you are one of the two people in the world who have not seen the movie Moulin Rouge, it is essentially the story of Ewan McGregor, uh, who is a uh, penniless sort of artist, uh, songwriter, uh, living in Paris, Uh, He goes to the Moulin Rouge. He sees Satine, the beautiful courtesan, which is the fancy word for prostitute. And uh, they immediately fall in love. There's an evil duke. uh, Blah, blah, blah. Drama. She dies at the end. That's essentially what Moulin Rouge is all about. Uh, It is uh, wild and crazy and over the top in the most uh, weird and wonderful Baz Luhrmann-y kind of a way. We have been big fans of the movie for a very, very long time, so we were eagerly looking forward to this brand new Broadway adaptation, and to say that we were sadly disappointed is an understatement. Uh, This show is horrible. Um, Now, (laughs) it's so horrible, in fact, that Jeff was furious as we fled the theater during intermission. So before you go 
getting all ranty pants, let me try to hone in on what exactly was the problem with Moulin Rouge. First of all, the one good thing that Moulin Rouge has going for it is the stage and set design. It is beautiful. It is ornate. The only problem is, is that after the first three minutes, it shoots its load and there's absolutely nowhere else to go. Um, the biggest problems are the script, or in this case, since it's a musical, the book, and the music. <laughs> which is unfortunate because those are the two building blocks of a Broadway musical. <laughs> Let's talk about the script first. Uh, more often than not, the characters just stand there and they tell you what they're doing or what they're feeling or what they're experiencing instead of just doing it and letting the audience feel something. Uh, so the script is uh, pretty terrible. Uh, second of all is the music. Now, in the movie, they took uh, essentially modern pop songs and utilized them in a fresh and weirdly wonderful Baz Luhrmann-y kind of a way. Uh, if you remember uh, from the film, uh, they essentially um, did uh, mashups before mashups. Were, remember when mashups were a thing? Mm -hmm. uh, they essentially did that. Uh, here... Oh boy, they get it so very wrong. It's like the it's like the songwriters and producers for this show went to the 99 cent store and went to the bargain CD bin and found like remember those uh, CD compilations. Now that's what I call music. Mm -hmm. You remember those CDs? It's like they dug around in the bin and found as much of those as they could and they took all those CDs, put them in a player and pressed shuffle. That's how nonsensical the musical choices in this show are. They literally make no sense. Uh, and, and aside from the fact that they don't make any sense, is, is that the mashups are a complete and utter disaster. Take, for instance, uh, the big love song between the Nicole Kidman and uh, Ewan McGregor characters. Uh, in the movie, they take like three, maybe four songs and kind of meld them all together into this beautiful, uh, elaborate melody. Uh, here in the stage show, I think there's no less than 14 different <laughs> songs that they used. Uh, and the characters, I like, they don't even really sing half a bar before they switch to another song, making it impossible to like get any sort of like feeling or emotional or like a uh, logical track for the story that's going on. Um, it's kind of a really big mess, which is incredibly unfortunate because they've got a really remarkable cast. We are big fans of Danny Bernstein and Karen Olivo and Aaron Tveit. They played the three main leads. Um, and they have been in some remarkable things over the years. And I can't help but wonder, um, they have like, uh, they've got tremendous acting chops and they've like dug into some remarkable material over the years. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think they must know that this show sucks. And I feel really, really bad for them. <laughs> but you know, it's really weird. This is a Times Critics pick. <laughs> ben Brantley likes this show. <laughs> Ugh, what was he smoking that night? Uh, all I'll say is, because you've ranted quite a lot, and uh, I felt that they sucked the magical soul out of the film. By intermission, I didn't believe that Christian was smitten with Satine at all. 
I barely believe Satine was sick. She might have just had a cough on that swing <laughs> during Diamonds. Um, I was wildly disappointed um, in the show, and I was... I don't often leave shows. Will leave shows far more than I do. In the same way that he will end a book because life is too short, he will leave a show in intermission if he's not happy. I was glad he was done. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to go. So, final thought on Moulin Rouge is we hated it. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't love it. Um, to, yeah. e- to each his own. If this is your thing, we are happy for you. We are just simply sharing our opinions on why we were so disappointed. That, ladies and gentlemen, whew, um, <laughs> that was our Broadway tour 2019. <laughs> uh, that's everything that we saw and enjoyed and had problems with. Uh, and hopefully, uh, if you find yourself in New York City, you will partake of some of those shows as well. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at facebook.com slash biggayfictionpodcast and see what we get up to next. So, of course, the other big part of being in New York City for so many days was to go to our first RWA National Conference. Uh, really our first RWA meeting of any kind. Uh, we, we belong to our local Sacramento chapter, and sadly, we've actually never shown up to a meeting uh, because they usually are, they're really actually usually against our meetings of the Queer Sacramento Authors Collective, mm-hmm. uh, and we tend to show up there more. Uh, it was an interesting year, I think, to be at RWA because there's been so much discussed around uh, inclusivity and the... Uh, all the stuff that went down with the Rita Awards and the lack of representation of authors of color and other um, marginalized thank voices. Thank you. Marginalized yeah, voices is yeah, what yeah. I was trying to come up with there. Yeah. Uh, so it was really an interesting year to be there. Uh, we went to several educational panels and we'll, we talk actually more, much more about that than we will hear over on the Big Gay Author podcast episode one. Uh, you made the interesting analogy that while it is so massive and feels so overwhelming, uh, because it was spread out over six or seven floors in the Marriott and Times Square, you often felt disconnected from the whole thing. There are authors we know who were there that we never saw over the four days of the conference, which was a little crazy. Uh, we did have the opportunity to meet several of our podcast uh, colleagues who run romance podcasts. There was a great session with the the folks who run Women with Books, Faded Mates, Wicked Wallflowers Club, and the Mermaid Podcast. And it was great to hear from them what they're doing on their shows. And they were encouraging other people to start podcasts, which is great because the more of us doing podcasts about romance, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the inclusivity vibe kind of ran through the entire event. Uh, the RWA board had a two-hour session where they were listening to people just coming up to microphones and talking about their issues with the organization, what they feel like has gone wrong, what can be done to get these marginalized voices more to the table. And those were certainly discussions that needed to happen. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we did do our Rita Awards moment on Friday night. The only night we didn't go to the theater because we were already engaged in another event. 
Here's the thing. Um, it was uh, a nice coincidence that RWA was happening in New York City, and we were, you know, going to end up going to New York for our annual theater trip anyway. Right. So we decided to combine the two. And since this was going to be our very first uh, Romance Writers of America National Conference, we were basically just going to kind of take it easy and uh, experience it for the first time and just, you know, see how it goes. Uh, so we're gonna, we were kind of going to keep things pretty casual. Uh, but um, the opportunity arose. Uh, someone recommended uh, that we take part in the Rita Awards ceremony. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Ritas are essentially the Academy Awards of the romance novel industry. Um, we weren't intending to go to the Rita Awards, but when we were invited, it was like, okay, sure, why not? Um, yeah. So we we went to the mall and bought ourselves some fancy duds. Yeah. Uh, we got dressed up on Friday night and took part in what ended up being a pretty remarkable ceremony. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad we went. Um, not because, not only because it was like fun to take part, but I think some really remarkable things actually ended up happening that evening. They certainly did. And speaking of our fancy dress, we'll put a picture in case somebody missed it on social media. Uh, we'll drop a picture of us in our fancy attire on the show notes page so you can see it. Because uh, we did talk about the heartache and difficulty of buying those clothes back in episode 188. <laughs> But you're right, a lot of really amazing things happened during the Rita Awards. Uh, many authors of color got up there and spoke. Many representing marginalized voices spoke. The first author of color, Kennedy Ryan, won that night uh, for, for her novel, which was really special to see. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of really amazing speeches that happened during the awards, too. Uh, Trailblazing romance novelist Radcliffe, uh, who today is also the president of Bold Strokes Books, uh, gave a wonderful speech that was kind of the, the history of LGBTQ romance. And New York chapter president Laquette, uh, who has been on this show, of course, uh, with one of her gay romances earlier this year, also gave a tremendous speech. And uh, we are very pleased that we can bring both of these to you now on the show. So we're going to start off with Radcliffe, and then uh, Laquette will speak. Thank you, good evening, and congratulations to all the Rita finalists, past, present, and future. Romance fiction has been one of the fundamental formative elements of my life. As long as I can remember from the time I could read, I gravitated toward romance novels. I learned about the relationships humans crave, about love, desire, honor, and dignity, through reading stories about people who loved with a singular grand passion. I learned that love, above all human emotions, could help us heal our deepest wounds. Many of those authors whose stories touched my life are in this room tonight and have been honored on this very stage. But the authors who spoke to me most deeply, those whose voices spoke to the reality of my life, have not been heard here. Those authors who wrote about love between two men and two women, whose words created hope and pride and affirmation, as well as role models for me as an author, have remained invisible. Anne Allen Shockley's Loving Her in 1974, and Say Jesus and Come to Me eight years later, 
the first romances by an African-American author to depict love between African-American women. Gordon Merrick's 1970s popular romance trilogy, the earliest to celebrate a lifelong love between two young college men. These were among the authors whose voices comforted me and gave me the hope that I too could find love. When I began writing in the 1980s and published my first romance, Safe Harbor, nearly 20 years ago, I never considered writing anything other than lesbian romances. Lesbian romances had literally saved my life by showing me the path from a place of guilt and quiet desperation to one of strength and pride in being myself. I could not, cannot, imagine writing anything other than stories about women loving women in the hopes that I can give to one single reader the gift I received from the authors before me. For marginalized people, for the queer teenagers who fear they are the only ones who feel what they feel and who too often bear the brunt of physical and emotional abuse, for the LGBTQ people in countries where expressing their same-sex love can result in imprisonment or death, for the queer person in this room tonight who still feels the stigma of difference, our romances our, are life-giving. Our romances, all of our romances, speak to what is best and most noble in the human character. That's... That's what we as romance authors, each of us, bring to the world, hope above all else. This organization was begun so the voices of romance authors could be heard. Our voices are many and varied, and every voice contributes to the power of our message. It's my honor and privilege to be part of the romance writing community and to be among the writers in this room who voice the stories of love, community, and dreams come true. Thank you. As the president of the New York City chapter of RWA, I am happy to be here tonight. It thrills us to be your host city. The romance genre has been a significant part of my life since I read my first romance novel at 16, A Harlequin Presents by Carol Mortimer, titled The Devil's Price. Like many of us, I was hooked. I raided my local library's romance section and devoured the books on almost a daily basis. But after that two-year mark, though my love of the genre thrived, my dedication to reading it withered and I withdrew from it. The stories were still well-written and intriguing, but as I grew into adulthood and realized what it meant to be a black woman in this world to me, the books lost their luster. I wanted to see myself in them, but never once did I discover a story featuring a curvy black girl from Brooklyn finding her happiness too. And trust me, I looked for them. So after a while, I stopped reading romance altogether. Some might struggle to understand why not seeing myself on the page would make my interest in romance wane. It wasn't just because I needed to see a black woman on the pages. It was the underlying message that as a curvy black woman from Brooklyn, I didn't deserve love, the same love, the same chance at a happily ever after as my white, thin counterparts. 
And then I discovered Black Expressions Book Club, a subscription service that sold African-American literature in all genres. And like Terry McMillan's Stella, your girl got her romance writing, your, her romance reading <laughs> groove back. Writing too. <laughs> there I discovered the trailblazers of our genre. Rochelle Allers, Donna Hill, Frances Ray, Serenity King, and Gwen Forster. I discovered E.L. Lynn Harris, Harris's stories of LGBTQ people of color living, loving, and fighting for their happily ever after. I discovered the beauty of eroticism in romance through the scorching hot, feminist, sexually liberating work of Zane and Mary B. Morrison, AKA Honey Bee. I studied at the feet of brilliant authors who wrote unapologetically sexy black characters living their best and sometimes craziest lives. These books did more than entertain me. They taught me that black people and other people of color, LGBTQ people, and everyone who stands at the various sections, intersections of marginalization deserved love and happiness. That curvy black chick from Brooklyn deserved a happily ever after. And they showed me that I could write it, so I did. I did, and I do, along so many other authors who are doing the same, writing their stories, stories that come thanks to decades of other writers who wrote before us, stories that are created for a new generation of readers for whom diversity is natural. It's no big deal. It is the world they live in. They know we all deserve love and happiness, and they expect to see that reflected in their books. So why don't we work together to do what this genre does best, share love. To publishers and acquiring editors, seek out own voices, diverse, marginalized authors, and their work, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's good business. You're leaving money on the table. Support these voices by contracting their work, giving them the same advances, the same marketing budgets as are customary for your mainstream authors and their stories. If you give us the same backing, our books will sell too. Mainstream authors, support us by recommending our work sharing your author platforms with us the way you do any other of your other author friends. Celebrate these authors and their works, not because they are marginalized voices, but because they are writing damn good books that should be celebrated regardless of their background. It might get a little quiet after I say this next, next piece. <laughs> Y'all might not like me after this, but. <laughs> Readers, look beyond the easy excuse of not being able to relate to stories not centered on your own experiences.
Ask yourselves, why is it easier for you to relate to lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, <laughs> falling in love than it is for you to find a story about a successful black woman finding her happily ever after? The answer to, the, to that question may make you uncomfortable, but discomfort isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it's a sign of growth, of compassion, of a path forward. Love is love is love. It does not come with a specified racial, ethnic, sexual, religious, able-bodied, neurotypical identity or political affiliation. If we know this in life, we should also know this in the romance novels we pen and consume. To love is a human quality. And if we see the humanity of all people, the idea that they too fall in love wouldn't be strange. To my fellow black authors, my LGBTQ authors, to my neurodivergent authors, to my disabled authors, and to all of us who fall under the banner of marginalized voices, don't let rejection stop you. Keep pressing, keep talking about it, keep reminding the industry we exist. Be so loud and so proud with your celebration of us that the world can't help but take notice of how beautiful we are. Thank you. It was amazing to us, I think, to hear Radcliffe speak. Uh, she spoke right after we presented our award, so we were like hustling around to the back of the of the ballroom so we could hear her presentation. The thing in it that resonated the most with me, besides calling out some of the gay romances that I first read, uh, was her thing that romance authors bring the world hope above all else. I kind of want that on a t-shirt mm -hmm. uh, because it, it it's true. We bring those happily ever afters uh, regardless of who is doing the writing. So I really, really like that sentiment there. Um, and then in Laquette's speech, she, she just brought it. I mean, she mm -hmm. called out everybody that needed to be called out um, on, the, on the marginalized voices side. I think she's 100% right that publishers are just leaving money on the table by not publishing work that includes marginalized voices and marginalized characters because everybody deserves to see themselves in a romance. Mm -hmm. uh, and most key to me was her note that people can take shifter romance seriously and believe it and yet not believe uh, in the work of a marginalized voice. Somebody in the diversity panel uh, with the RWA board noted that they had been marked down in one of their books because the reader couldn't believe that a black woman was a chemist. It's like, what? Well, I, don't, I don't understand how that happens. So these were tremendous speeches, and I want to thank RWA and Radcliffe and Laquette for giving us permission to air those speeches here. Something else that was a really wonderful and unique part of this year's ceremony um, were sort of like little video segments that aired uh, in between the announcing of the individual awards. Uh, it was essentially a way to highlight um, the trailblazers of the romance community. And so many of them were 
books that we've read, certainly that you've read, things like Damon Swade's Hothead, the Charlie and uh, Peter and Charlie trilogy from Gordon Merrick, uh, the front runner from Patricia Nell Warren, on and on and on. So many great books. You can see the entire list at rwa.org slash trailblazers, and that is in the show notes as well. Plus, if you're still interested, the entire Rita ceremony is still up and can be replayed. And that's an ungangly like uh, URL, so you can get that in the show notes. <laughs> um, it's a remarkable two hours. A very professionally run, by the way. Yeah. I was uh, delighted and um, not necessarily surprised, but um, they run a tight ship at RWA. Um, that show started exactly at 7 and then ended precisely on the dot at 9 p.m. Yeah. Uh, they don't mess around. So if you're interested in viewing... Uh, the two-hour ceremony, as Jeff mentioned, uh, check out RWA. Okay, guys, whew, that was a lot to cover, but I think that's going <laughs> to do it for this week's show. Uh, please remember that uh, we do have a Patreon page, uh, and Patreon is a way for fans to engage with all kinds of artists, whether it's writers or musicians, and podcasters as well. It's a great way to uh, support the kinds of creative content that you enjoy the most. If you're curious about what kind of bonus material we deliver to our fans every single month, just go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Now, coming up in episode 201, Amber Smith is going to be here, and she's going to be talking about her recent YA novel, Something Like Gravity. Yes, this was a very fun interview to do, and I think people are going to be really surprised on how she developed this book. I certainly was. Yeah, guys. So thank you for joining us this week for this very special, momentous episode 200. Uh, and we hope, if you're interested, you'll give our new show, The Big Gay Author Podcast, a try. So guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. For detailed show notes and links to everything discussed in this episode, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday at all major podcast distributors. You can also find us on YouTube. I'm Derek McLean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>